Well, let's go back to Ephesians chapter 4. I intended to have that whole section wrapped up before the break, but I have a tendency to get carried away. And uh, sometimes I take rabbit trails. And uh, as one individual said, rabbit trails are okay to take as long as you kill the rabbit. So hopefully the rabbit's dead. Ephesians 4, once again, let's ask God to bless. And I'm going to see, kind of see how this goes. Uh, Jared and I were just talking. I might do uh, two short uh, sessions and give you a break in between before we stop for lunch. Or I may just give you one long one. It kind of depends on if I see you starting to go to sleep. Uh, I'll, I'll make a break and we'll get up and move around. I do appreciate you coming out on a Saturday. You know, it's a beautiful fall day out there. I know there are many, many things that you could all be out doing. And the fact that you come here is a great encouragement to me uh, because it certainly shows your interest in God's Word and in your lives, and that's very important. So let's ask God's blessing as we come back into Ephesians chapter 4. Father, how we desire to see the unity that your Word speaks of displayed in our churches. We realize, Father, that the only hope for this nation is a knowledge and understanding of who and what Jesus Christ is and has done. And we desire to be the instruments that will make him known to this country. As Jared said earlier, to be that true remnant that remains faithful in the midst of an unfaithful generation. But Father, there are many brands yet to be plucked from the fire. And it's our desire to play a part in that rescue operation. So drive these, deep, these words deep into our hearts and our souls. Uh, shoot those barbed arrows uh, into our heart that we will not be able to dislodge. But as we leave this place this morning, we'll continue to work to convict us of the areas that we need to correct, to encourage us in the things that need to be done right, and to sustain us in the face of the tests and the trials of life. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So just to quickly review, Paul has basically gone through three levels of unity in these first 16 verses uh, in Ephesians chapter 4. He tells us that there is a unity that all believers share because we are united in Christ. What this means is that none of us has any advantage over anyone else. Every believer in Jesus Christ is baptized by the Holy Spirit into union with Jesus Christ. We all have the same standing. We are united with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. We are raised up with him and seated in the heavenly places with him. That is our position. We all share that together. We all have equal provisions. We all have equal opportunities. It's sometimes shocking to us to consider the fact that the Apostle Paul had no advantage over us in the Christian life. The Apostle Paul achieved what he achieved. As he says to the Corinthians, I am what I am by the grace of God, and the grace that was given to me was not given in vain, but I labored more than the rest. 
Paul poured his heart and his soul into taking the spiritual riches that he had been given and to amplify them in his ministry to win the unsaved to Christ and to build those who believe up in the faith. We need to be doing the same. So we have that spiritual unity. We have then a practical unity as we work together. Uh, this is a little bit smaller circle. Tragically, many believers are happy to trust Christ, to know that they are here in the body of Christ, that they have an eternal future, that they're going to spend eternity in the presence of the Lord, and that's really all they want out of the Christian life. They're happy to, as a former evangelist friend of mine used to say, they're happy to suck their thumb till Jesus comes. They, they have no desire to move on from the point of regeneration. But we, we want to work together. And so we have that practical unity of working for the winning of others to Christ, being the ambassadors that we ought to be, the ministers of reconciliation, uh, fulfilling our priesthood in prayer and intercession for others. Those are things that we do together. And then, of course, he moves into that doctrinal unity of coming into the unity of the faith. The unity of the faith is just a clearer, more mature, more complete understanding of the Word of God as it is written and as God intends us to understand it. So I left off at the last session asking the question, what is it that keeps hindering this? And Paul's flow of thought through this amazing passage here in Ephesians is going to move right into that very issue. So if you will, look with me at Ephesians 4, beginning in verse 17. This I say, therefore, therefore referring back to what he's covered in the first 16 verses, and testify in the Lord that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind, having their understanding darkened. <clears throat> I have so many notes in my Bible, sometimes it's hard for me to read. See, let me show you Ephesians. You see Ephesians? Every line, every circle in there means something, but sometimes they may be hard for me to read. So, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart, who, being past feeling, have given themselves over to lewdness to work all uncleanness with greediness. What I want us to understand is that Paul here is outlining what happens in the life of a believer who refuses to grow up in grace. There are seven steps down in this passage. Hey, Nan, could you go get me a wet paper towel? Uh, I've got, Nan, I've got, there's right in front. What's that? Gene Miller that he'll get. There are seven steps down in this, oh, you got it all right. Good man. And there are seven logical steps of spiritual deterioration, spiritual reversion, whatever you want to call it, that happens when we fail to grow. You know, when I was in Brazil in 1967, 
We were living on, I was living with a primitive tribe of Indians. We were on a river called the Padu River. The Padu River is a very swift river. There are class five rapids on this river. Uh, every 100 to 200 yards, you will go through a series of severe rapids because I believe they said the river dropped 60 feet a mile uh, for a very long distance. So we're in dugout canoes, which are not like nice canoes or kayaks that you would go and buy. They're lopsided, they're very tippy, uh, they're, they're very easily upset. Uh, I actually capsized at one point. Uh, the, the rapids come down to a point that the natives call the Gorgullo. And the Gorgullo is where you come off of a drop of about five feet. It's like a huge waterfall dropping five feet into a massive whirlpool. And they kept telling me, you gotta go fast, you gotta hit it fast, and so on and so forth. Well, I didn't hit it fast enough, and of course it started spinning the canoe, and the next thing I knew, <coughs> me and the canoe and everything in it was floating in the river, which is not exactly what you want in a river that's full of piranha. So, but here's the lesson that I got out of it. They said, you can't steer the canoe unless it's moving faster than the water. You've got to be moving faster than the water to steer it. And from that, I drew a principle. You can only steer a ship if it's moving. God can only steer our life if we're moving. I can't tell you how many times I've seen Christians who are struggling to make a decision. Shall I go to the right? Shall I go to the left? What shall I do? And they just sit still and nothing ever happens. They ask the question, why isn't God guiding me? And I often say, because you're standing still. Make the best, the wisest, the most biblically informed decision that you can make and start moving. If you're moving in the wrong direction, God will direct you. He'll close the door. He'll raise up an obstacle. He'll steer you in another direction. But it's very difficult to steer you when you're standing still. And of course, it's like the old illustration from uh, Alice in Wonderland when she comes to the split in the road and she doesn't know whether to go left or whether to go right and she starts crying and the Cheshire cat shows up in the tree and says, why are you crying little girl? And she says, because I don't know where to go. And the Cheshire cat says, where do you want to go? And she says, I don't know. In other words, I don't know what destination I'm aiming at. And so the Cheshire cat says, then it really doesn't matter, does it? What difference does it make? You don't have a destination. You don't have a goal in mind. You don't have a target that you're shooting at. We always want to have something out there in front of us that we're aiming at and that we're striving for and that we're pushing for, but we're just treading water and we're standing still, and that's not the Christian life that we want. So I want you to notice the steps down here, seven steps, and he begins by saying, This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord. And whenever Paul says, I testify in the Lord, uh, he, he is taking what they would call a solemn oath. In other words, he's saying, I'm really serious about this. I'm testifying this together with the Lord. In other words, he's backing me up in what I'm saying. It's this serious. It's this important. And what is it that he's testifying with the Lord about? that you, believers, should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk. We have, we have the quote up here from Tertullian. Did you notice it? 
He was astounded that the Christians would be willing to die for one another, where the unbelievers, the typical Roman, would be willing to kill rather than to die. That was the difference. Behold how they love one another, was what they said. Well, here we have the problem of the believer who instead of moving as they should, here's the goal. We're going to see this shortly. From the cross to the crown, the normal Christian life, onward and upward, certainly it's going to have some pitfalls, certainly it's going to have some valleys, but we're moving upward constantly. That's the goal. What Paul is going to deal with now is the path that goes like this. It's the path of disobedience. It's the path of what he calls carnality. We'll get into that in our next session. And it's the path of no productivity, no spiritual growth, no impact on the world around us, no ministry to our fellow believers, or simply going downhill. How does it all begin? We start living like an unbeliever. Say, well, I don't live like an unbeliever. Well, what is the essential motivation of the unbeliever? Self. It is what I want. It is what I desire. It is what's in it for me. It is looking out for number one first. And that becomes the essential motivation of their life. What do I get out of this? How is this going to benefit me? And as soon as a believer begins living like that, they start this downward spiral that goes from a position of tremendous provision and tremendous opportunity into just really a horrible lifestyle. So what is the first step? Living like the Gentiles. Walking like the Gentiles walk. Again, self-centered motive. What's the next step? In the futility of their mind. The word futility is a word that means a vacuum. The vacuum that he's speaking of here is a vacuum of knowledge of the Word of God. You know, the world is kind of like a big vacuum, and what does a vacuum do? You ladies know because you have a vacuum cleaner. What does a vacuum cleaner do? It sucks up dirt. When our souls are not surrounded and hedged in and guarded by God's Word, we become open to all of the input and all the influx that's coming in from the world, and it's all garbage. And so once we begin living for self, to illustrate it the way A.W. Tozer said it, in every heart there's a throne and a cross. And every day you and I make a decision which of those we're going to take. When people start choosing to sit on the throne of their life, the end result is what the author of Hebrews calls crucifying the Son of God afresh. You're basically putting Christ on the cross. What was it that Jesus said in Luke 9, 23? If any man will come after me, let him deny himself, step one, take up his cross, step two, and follow after. Well, what's the alternative to taking up the cross and following after? Sitting on the throne and saying, I'm going to run my life my way. And that's the basic motivation of the unbeliever. So, he doesn't want us to walk as the Gentiles walk in the futility, the vacuum of their mind. We could call this hedonism. Having their understanding darkened, 
being alienated from the life of God. Here is the separation, the alienation that comes between the soul and God because of the ignorance that is in them. He's describing how the typical unbeliever lives in order to explain to us how we ought not to live. It's very important to understand that. Because of the ignorance in them, because of the blindness of their heart, the more we follow a self-centered, self-motivated lifestyle, the greater the ignorance that is going to develop within our soul because, well, let's face it, how many people do you know who could have been here today who are not here? An opportunity to learn something you didn't know before. I would think that would be pretty important. Well, I do understand it's deer season, and I do understand that it's a beautiful fall day, and I understand that there are many demands on us, and I understand that, you know, we all have obligations and responsibilities and things that we could be doing. But you know what God's always looking at? What's the priority in your soul? What's the most important thing to you? Are your priorities biblical priorities? Are your priorities spiritual priorities? Because the minute spiritual priorities cease to dictate the decisions that we make in life, we start, when you stop paddling the canoe, to use the earlier illustration, what happens? It just goes with the current. It's going to go where the current takes us. And as soon as we start actively or stop actively pursuing an understanding of the Word of God and growing in grace and becoming more and more useful and effective in the plan of God, what's going to happen to us? The current of life. I mean, you tell me, what's the current like out there? Is it going in a good direction? Do you want to go the way that the flow of this generation is going? I certainly don't. But I do know one thing. The minute I stop making this book the priority of my life, that's exactly what's going to happen. The influence is so subtle and it's so gradual. And the darkening of the mind comes in kind of like the twilight in the fall when, it, you know, the sun's going down and it's almost as if you're going blind because you can see clearly and then you can see dimly and then you can't see at all. The light's gone. That's exactly what happens in our soul when we start take, stop taking in the light of God's Word. So, I don't know what I'm doing here. Something's not working right. I never get along with these ear things because my ear doesn't fit them apparently. So having your understanding darkened, what happens when the darkness starts closing in on your soul? You start developing an alienation with your Lord and Savior. Being alienated from the life of God. God has a life that He wants us to live. It's a life that is lived in the light of His Word. It's a life that is lived in the power of His Spirit. It's sharing in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we begin to drift with the current of life, we get further and further away from the light of truth. The darkness of this world begins closing in on our soul until it comes to the point where there's an alienation that takes place. You know how it happens as well as I do. It happens in friendships, doesn't it? 
What happens when friends stop communicating? You know, you grow up in high school, you're the best of friends, you go off to college, you call each other all the time, you write all the time, and then suddenly the letters begin to cease, the calls begin to cease, the communication begins to fade away, and then what happens in five years? Where's the relationship? It doesn't exist. An alienation has taken place. And now two people, I remember meeting with the guy that was my best friend when I was in high school after years of not knowing each other and we were about as close as two guys could get. We were like band of brothers close. He didn't even remember most of the things I remembered. I tried to talk about stuff that we used to do and things that we used to talk about and things that we used to laugh about. And he was like, I don't remember any of that. It was gone. An alienation had taken place. What a horrible thing for that to happen in a friendship. What a terrible thing when it happens in a marriage. How much worse when it happens in your relationship to Jesus Christ. We can't let that happen. So don't allow yourself to be alienated from the life of God. He talks about the fact <clears throat> that the blindness of their heart being past feeling, they have given themselves over to lewdness to work all uncleanness with greediness. And our word greediness here is a word that refers to an insatiable desire, an insatiable lust. In other words, nothing is ever enough. Nothing ever completely satisfies. Nothing ever uh, is, brings fulfillment. There's this emptiness that just can't seem to pull enough in to ever be satisfied, and that's the end result. We're frantically looking for something to make us happy. We're frantically looking for someone to accept us as we are and frantically looking to try to find everything that we left and walked away from, and now we're desperate because nothing is able to satisfy the hunger that's in my soul. The world can't do it. Society can't do it. Money can't do it. Even friendships outside of Christ can't do it. It's, it's not going to satisfy the hunger of the new creature in Christ that every believer becomes. So what a horrible thing. Just a little diversion from the path at one point in a person's life leads them further and further and further away until somewhere along the line there is an empty soul that cannot be satisfied. It's a terrible condition that Paul describes here. If we had more time, <coughs> excuse me, I could go into each of these words and describe them in a little bit more detail, a little bit more clearly, but I think you get the point. It's, it's uh, look around you. Let me just ask you, how many of you know believers who are here? How many of you have friends that maybe you once were very close to, people who were in your church, people that were growing in grace and truth, possibly even people in the ministry, and somewhere along the line there was that little parting of the ways and that little decision after decision after decision that was made that kept widening the gap and bringing in a greater and greater alienation until now you look at them and you can't tell the difference between them and an unbeliever. 
Their goals are the same. Their motives are the same. Their thinking is the same. It's a tragic condition for a believer to be in. But it's what always happens when we turn away from the Word of God. Notice that he says, and he begins to touch on the solution here in verse 20. But you have not so learned Christ. This is not what you have learned. This is not what has been taught of Jesus Christ to you. This is not what the Word of God has commended to us. You have not so learned Christ, if indeed you have heard Him and been taught by Him as the truth is in Jesus. He sets before us a different path. He sets before us a deeper motivation. He has an upward climb at a goal that is set out there in front of us of first spiritual maturity, growth into ministry and service, conformity to the character of Jesus Christ, bringing honor and glory to our Lord and Savior until that moment that God calls us into His presence and we stand before the judgment seat of Christ and we hear those marvelous words, well done, good and faithful servant. That will be worth it all. That will be worth any cost, any price, any difficulty, any hardship that we may go through in climbing to that place of fulfillment. So you've not learned so Christ. He says in verse 22, what have we learned? That you put off concerning your former conduct the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lust. Put it off. The phrase that is used here is a word that actually speaks of taking off a filthy garment. My clothes are dirty. What do I do when my clothes are dirty? I take the dirty clothes off. I take a bath. I put on clean clothes. The dirty clothes are like the conduct. The clean bath is like the cleansing that God gives us when we confess and acknowledge our sins to Him. And then the new clothes is the robe of righteousness. You remember the story of the prodigal son as he came back to the father, broken and battered and hungry and tattered, and the father received him and welcomed him. And he had one thing that he allowed the young man to say, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. And that's all he wanted to hear. Put on him the best robe. Put sandals of service on his feet. Put the ring that was my signet ring, my bank account, on his finger. And we often think of the parable of the prodigal son, which, by the way, is the most popular parable in, around the world of, of all the parables. It is the most loved. And we tend to think of it as just being about the prodigal son, but it's really not. The real lesson of the story of the prodigal son is the father. The father was waiting. The father was looking down the road for the return of the child. God's attitude always toward the erring believer is that he's looking down the road. This is my son. This is my child. This is the one that I have such high hopes for and great plans for. Ah, oh, here he comes over the hill. He's battered. He's hungry. He's bruised. He's tired. What can I do for him? I'll receive him back. I'll clean him up. I'll restore him. And he will be one of the family again. What a marvelous, marvelous God we serve. What a tremendous display of the grace of God every time we wander from the path and then we come back home. So we put off concerning the former conduct. I want you to notice, and we'll see this again in the book of James, you have to stop what you're doing to change how you're thinking. I want you to get this. 
Stop what you're doing to change what you're thinking. Why? Because you're reinforcing those erroneous attitudes and motives every single time you do what you're doing. If you want to clear something from your mind and, and block something out of your soul, you stop the things that associate you with that and then you have the opportunity for inner cleansing and inner reformation. And James is going to reinforce that for us in just a moment. Take off the old clothes. Be cleansed from these things. Be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Here we have the intake of the word of God. And then put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. Put on the new man. What is the new man? The new man is what Paul refers to in 2 Corinthians 5.17 as the new creation. If any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away, all things have become new. Let's look at you as an individual. I use circles even though hopefully we don't look like a circle. There is you as an unbeliever. You have a body. That's the part that the whole world sees. The body is open to the world. It's accessible to everyone. You have a soul that is accessible to a fewer number of people. We only let certain people inside. We can't help but rub shoulders. We have come into contact with, interact with people all around us in the area of the body, but how many people do we allow into the soul? We usually call them friends. Friends are people that we share like sentiments with, people that we have rapport with. We let them in to the inner man, but as an unbeliever, that's all we have, body and soul. When we trust in Christ, something new is created. This is spirit. It is in this spirit, and what does he say about its creation? He says it is the new man, that new creation, which is created how? In righteousness and holiness of the truth. In righteousness and holiness. Could I suggest something to you that you may have never thought of? God had to create something in you at the moment of salvation where the Holy Spirit could dwell. The Holy Spirit can only live in a holy environment. The glory of God could only dwell in the Holy of Holies. That's why the Holy of Holies was sealed off from all but one. The whole world has access to your body. Friends have access to your soul. There's only one who has access to your spirit. That's the Lord himself. Just as the high priest alone went in to meet God in the Holy of Holies, so you are the only one who can meet with the Lord in the Holy of Holies of your being, which is called in this passage, the new man. Now what happens when we sin? If we take that path Paul spoke of earlier of living as the Gentiles live, what happens? This area is sealed off. The door is closed. It's sealed off. And why is that? 
what may shock you to realize that sin can affect your body and your soul, but it cannot touch your spirit. Can't touch your spirit. You remember the passage in 1 John, I believe it's in 1 John 3, where he says, that which is, unfortunately it's often translated, he who is born of God does not sin. That's not what it says. It says, that which is born of God does not sin. There is a part of you that's incapable of sin. It's called the new man. Here we have, in the soul and the spirit, the old man. When we choose to live as an unbeliever, we are living according to the old man. The new man is sealed off. No access of the world, no access of sin, no access of the impulses of the sin nature. See, the sin nature lives out here. Doesn't live there. Cannot live in the new man. I don't know if you ever thought about this before. In that new creation, only the Holy Spirit dwells. It is the Holy of Holies in your being. But if we choose to conduct ourselves as an unbeliever and live according to the flesh, that alienation that I spoke of or that Paul spoke of earlier, that alienation has taken place because the door is sealed. And there is no interaction from the Spirit through the new man. So what is his solution? Put off the old man, open the door, and put on the new man. How do we do it? We confess our sins to God. We receive forgiveness every single time. But it's not enough just to confess. There must be correction as well. We have to stop the conduct as well as the motivation. And so when he says that the new man is created in righteousness and holiness of the truth, we realize that we are putting on that which is created according to the person of Jesus Christ. I'm not going to finish chapter 4. He goes on to tell us when this happens. We're going to put away lying. We're going to be angry and not sin. We're not going to steal any longer. We're going to give to those who are in need. We're not going to allow corrupt words to proceed out of our mouth. We're going to speak grace to the hearers. We're not going to grieve the Holy Spirit. What does it mean to grieve the Holy Spirit? Here he is. The door is closed. He's simply illustrating the truth that I just presented to you. When the Spirit is grieved, why is He grieved? Because the relationship has been disrupted. There's an alienation that has taken place that should never have taken place. And we don't want to grieve the Spirit of God by which we were sealed for the day of redemption. We don't have bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil in our life. Those things are gone. In its place, verse 32, we are kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as Christ in, as, as God in Christ has forgiven us. You see the contrast. From verse 1, where he said, walk worthy of your calling, all the way through verse 32. Paul has developed a flow of thought that says we are united in Christ. That should impact our lives. It should change the way we live. 
But if we choose to live according to the old lifestyle, the Spirit of God is grieved, the Holy of Holies of our being, as it were, is sealed off, there's an alienation that takes place between us and the Lord, and our life begins that downward spiral. Greater ignorance, greater darkness, greater misunderstanding, greater dissatisfaction until ultimately there is only an insatiable craving for something to fill the whole of my life. An old drug addict said this one time in a conversation. He said, everybody has a Christ-shaped hole in their life. He's the only one that can fill it. We try to fill it with drugs. We try to fill it with money. We try to fill it with sex. We try to fill it with success. We try to fill it with possessions. We try all of these things. And the emptiness only seems to get greater the more we try to fill the hole because only Christ can satisfy that hunger and that longing in our life. Let's go to James chapter 4 and see how James picks up on the same idea as the Apostle Paul. Now, I want to remind you, there are those who say that James was written to professing believers. That's a totally false claim. The book of James is written to believers. Fifteen times in this little book of five chapters, James refers to the readers as my brethren, my beloved brethren, or brethren, 15 times. He's talking to fellow believers. Yes? You might, can you explain the difference between a professing believer and <clears throat> just a believer? Okay, so, so there are those who claim that James was writing to people that claimed that they were believers but were not. In other words, they were saying, yeah, I believe. We run into people like this all the time. Yeah, I believe, but when you begin to question them, what do you believe? You find out that it has nothing to do with faith in Jesus Christ. It's being good. It's uh, being religious. It's being spiritual according to some worldly definition of spirituality. I'm spiritual because I sit and contemplate my navel and, and uh, hum Buddhistic uh, chants and so on and so forth. That makes me spiritual. So when James wrote his book, he was writing to people who were true believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's important for us to understand. So if you will go with me to James chapter 4, and I think if we're honest, we know that what James is saying here is something that we run into all the time. He says, where do wars and fights come from among you? May I ask you a question? You ever see wars and fights between believers? Have you ever been to a church board meeting? <laughs> Have you ever been to a, a planning meeting for a building? Yeah, you know what I'm talking about. Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desire for pleasure your desires for pleasure that war in your members? Some translations have the lust for pleasure that wages war in your members. And the whole point that he's building here is exactly what Paul was speaking of in Ephesians 4.17. Stop living like unbelievers live. Don't be motivated by the things that motivate them. Don't seek after the goals that they seek after. Don't live according to the standards that they establish. 
Stop thinking the way they think and pursuing the things that they pursue. And so here he's saying, why are there fights and divisions among you as Christians? I'll tell you why. It's because you're living according to the lust of the sin nature. That's the point that, Paul, that James is making here. Why is there fighting? Why is there division? Why is there strife and contention? Well, somebody is living according to sin nature. We can be sure of that. Maybe everybody. Sometimes it's maybe one person who's bringing this division and strife into the gathering. Sometimes everybody in the gathering is out of line. It happens very, very easy. You ever have somebody tick you off? You can be just as placid and peaceful and loving and someone says something to you that just really irritates you and all of a sudden you're ready to bite their head off. That's how quick it can happen. That's how rapidly we can go from being, <coughs> excuse me, from being spiritual to being carnal in a moment of time. James is going to tell us where they come from. Verse 2. You lust and don't have. You know, there's nothing worse than when we have cravings that are never satisfied. We crave, we desire, we lust, we want. I want to succeed. I want to be honored. I want to be respected. I want people to speak well of me. On and on and on and on down the line. And when those things are not satisfied, we end up in this condition that he's speaking of. When you lust and you don't have, what do you do? Well, you murder and covet and cannot obtain. You say, well, I've never murdered. What was it Jesus said? If you judge your brother, if you hate your brother, what have you done? You've committed murder in your heart. You haven't done the act, but as he said with adultery, the man who looks at a woman to lust after her, what has he done? He's committed adultery already in his heart. When we go to a friend <coughs> and start talking down another believer, what are we doing? We're murdering their reputation. How many people can we think back on who once were close friends and one heard that the other said something to a mutual friend about them and the friendship was done. <coughs> I apologize. Murder has taken place. The murder of a relationship, the murder of a friendship, the murder of a reputation. And on and on it goes. So you covet and murder <coughs> and you can't obtain. You still can't get it. You want to have it. You're striving for it. You're pursuing it, you're craving it, and you can't get it. You fight and war, and yet you don't have because you don't ask. Somewhere along the line, the breakdown comes from the fact that we are dependent on the wrong source for our fulfillment. Instead of seeking it from God and instead of asking it from God, we're trying to get it ourselves. And we're willing to do whatever we have to do. <coughs> Pardon me so that we can get it. You, have, you don't have because you don't ask. You ask and do not receive. Why? Because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. I want this, God give me this. God doesn't give it. 
Now we're angry. I know someone who once was growing in grace, involved in ministry, prayed for something, God didn't answer that prayer, and so they decided God doesn't exist. Thank you, Aaron. You're a good man. This is what we call spiritual service. You just got reward in heaven. I don't know if this water will do the trick, but we'll try it. What Jesus say? If you give a little child a cup of cold water, you will not lose your reward. If you give a prophet a cup of cold water, I'm not a prophet because our ministry is non-profit. <laughs> if you give a prophet a cup of cold water in the name of a prophet, you receive a prophet's reward. <coughs> what an amazing thing. What an amazing thing that the God, number one, who forgave us all our sin, who took our sin on himself at the cross, <coughs> who offers us eternal life, who gives us a position in his royal family, and that's not enough, who imputes us, excuse me, with his own righteousness, and that's not enough. He wants to give us eternal reward. Every epistle in the New Testament is written to focus on two things. The things that we're doing that are costing us eternal reward and the things that we could be doing that would gain us eternal reward. Can you believe that the God who sought you and saved you and brought you into his family wants you to stand approved in his presence? I don't know about you, but that thought constantly amazes me. Let's move on. He calls them in verse 4, adulterers and adulterers. Why is that? Because James writes from a very Hebraistic way of thinking and in the uh, Old Testament uh, economy, spiritual adultery was the illustration of idolatry. When we put something before God, when we make something more important than God, we are guilty of spiritual adultery. And so he says, you're spiritual adulterers and adulteresses. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. I don't know about you. You know, I've been in a few fights in my life. I don't like to lose. And there's one thing I'm pretty sure of. God wins every fight he gets into. And if I choose to fight him, I'm going to lose. And if I make myself an enemy of God, in other words, I'm in opposition to him, what happens to the free flow and access of all of the riches of his grace and his mercy and his bounty and everything else that he does for us once again, we see that alienation, don't we? Alienated from the life of God. Constituting oneself his enemy. You say, well, how could a Christian, how could a true believer ever be called an enemy of God? Well, I have a question for you. How could a true believer be called Satan? You remember in Matthew 16, 
Jesus said to the disciples, Who do men say that I am? Well, some say Elijah, some say Jeremiah, some say one of the prophets. And then he asked the all-important question, Who do you say that I am? Peter spoke up. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. You remember what Jesus said to him? Blessed art thou, Simon Bar-Jonah, flesh and blood, that old man, all your intelligence, all your earthly wisdom, none of that revealed this to you. My Father revealed it from heaven. And then he said, guess what, boys? We're on our way to Jerusalem and I'm going to be rejected by the elders and I'm going to be arrested and I'm going to be beaten and scourged and then I'm going to be crucified. And Peter said, no, Lord. By the way, those two words don't go together. No, Lord. This shall not happen to you. And I can just see big old fisherman Peter standing there in front of the Lord like, I'm going to stop you from going there. And Jesus looked at him and said, get behind me, Satan. How long does it take from being in the status of being blessed by God to serving the will and the desire of the devil? A few moments. A simple decision. Just the shift from that thinking of divine viewpoint to the thinking of human viewpoint, from focusing on God's word to acting on human intellect and intelligence and motivation. And Peter goes from being blessed by the Father to being cursed by the Son. It happens so quickly. How alert we need to be. So I want to ask you a question. We've got about five minutes to finish this session. What in the world do you do when you find yourself in that condition? What do you do when you find yourself in the position Peter was in? Get behind me, Satan. What do you do when you find yourself in a condition that Paul spoke of, being alienated from the life of God and having an insatiable hunger in your soul that nothing seems to satisfy? What can you do? What can we do when we've taken that seven steps down that he spoke of in Ephesians 4, 17 to 19? Or we find ourselves in the situation here in James chapter 4 where there's war and fighting and strife among us. And my friends, this doesn't just apply to the church. This applies to Christian friends. This applies to Christian husbands and wife. When, there's, when those problems exist, sin is at the door. Sin is in control. What are we going to do? How do we resolve the problem? Paul began to introduce us to the idea when he said, take off the old man and put on the new man. Stop acting under the sin nature and start acting under the Spirit of God. Well, now James is going to develop further that idea. <coughs> Listen closely in verse 5 and following. Do you think that the Scripture speaks in vain that the Spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously. What does this mean? It means very simply this. He's not quoting a specific scripture reference. He's sim simply gathering together from many, many different passages the fact that God is a jealous God. God yearns for our devotion. God yearns for our obedience. God yearns for our 
unity and working together with him in his plan and his purpose. From the very beginning, as he created Adam and put him in the garden and gave him dominion, what was God's plan? To share his rulership with us. To share, if you will, his kingship with us. And now here we are in Christ, new creatures raised up, given resurrection life, seated with Christ in the heavenly places, in the place of power and authority. And he wants us to begin working in this fallen, broken, and evil world to accomplish his will, to bring light into the darkness, to bring healing where there are only wounds, to bring life where there's only death. How do we do it? What can we do? He's going to tell us. The Spirit yearns for your life. The Spirit yearns for your devotion. So he says in verse 6, he gives more grace. More grace than what? More grace than what's here. The grace of God didn't stop when you trusted Christ as your Savior. God's grace covered everything from the cross to the crown. Every day of your life, every situation you find yourself in. Why does God let bad things happen in Christian lives? How else would we learn about grace? How else would we begin to understand the power of God? A great victory when you're already in victory doesn't mean anything. A great victory when you've been at the bottom. A great victory when you've been broken. A great victory when it seems all is lost. That's a real victory. And it happens over and over and over again in the lives of believers. He gives more grace. By the way, if you want to know what kind of much more, go to Romans chapter 5. Romans 5, verse 9, verse 10, verse 20. I think five times in Romans 5, much more, much more, much more. How, how much more is there much more? Amen. That's what he wants us to get. You say, I've exploited all the grace of God there is. Oh no, there's much more. So he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. All right, get ready, because now we're here. Here's the believer who departed from the path, took the seven steps down. You can go back to Ephesians 4, 17 and 19 and outline those seven steps. He's going to give us seven steps to get back in line. You ready for them? This is spiritual recovery. Verse 7. Therefore, submit to God. That's number one. Stop fighting him. Stop resisting him. Stop stiff-arming him, holding him at a distance. Submit. The word literally means to submit under ultimate authority. Submit to God. Number two, resist the devil. You know, if you try to resist the devil before you submit to God, you're always going to lose. It has to be in order. First, surrender to God, then resist the devil. The word resist is the same word Paul uses in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 12, that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Resist the devil. Then what? He will flee from you. Step number three, draw near to God. How do I draw near to God? Well, the best way I would suggest is in his word and in a local church. Begin to draw near to God. If I draw near to God, the promise is he will draw near to you. Here comes the prodigal son over the hill. Do you remember what the father did? It says the father ran to him and fell on his neck and embraced him. Perfect illustration of what he's talking about here. 
Next step, cleanse your hands, you sinners. Notice, did I say this earlier? You gotta take care of the outside problem before you take care of the inside problem. Have you ever noticed that it's easier to stop doing something than it is to stop thinking it? You ever notice that? In our logic, we would say, well, stop thinking it and you'll stop doing it. Well, that's all great, but it's very difficult, isn't it? When we stop the associations, when we stop the actions, when we stop repeating the activities, an amazing thing starts happening. We can start filling that mind with greater light and understanding and truth, and we're able to free ourselves from those thoughts that permeate the mind. So we cleanse our hands, we purify our hearts. We do this by two things, confession and correction. Confess the sin and correct the sin. Purify your hearts, lament and mourn. All of these are commands, by the way, but this step in verse 9 takes four commands. Lament, mourn, weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy into gloom. What does he mean? Why would the Bible be commanding us to weep? It was very simple. We've been living a lifestyle that only weeping is the only proper response to. Again, the prodigal, as he went from his father, picturing the young man, he's got his inheritance, he's got his pack on his back, he's got money in his pocket, he's going to party at every inn that he comes to. What's his attitude? Laughter, joy, we're having a great time, isn't it wonderful, I'm free. When he turns around from the pig pen at the end of the experience and he starts the journey back, is he laughing? Is he celebrating? Weary and battered and broken, weeping, he works his way the long journey back home. I want you to ask yourself this question. Are there things in my life that I'm laughing about that I should be weeping over? Think about it. Are there things that bring me joy that should bring tears to my eyes? Are there things that I delight in that I ought to be ashamed of? This is what James is talking about. He ends in verse 10, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. We've gone from here at the foot of the cross, the downward path. Ephesians 4, 17 to 19. Now we come to James chapter 4, verses what, 6 to 10, 7 to 10. Where do we find ourselves? We're back on track. You say, what does all this have to do with unity? Everything. Everything. If self-centered, self-motivated lifestyle, conduct creates an alienation between me and God. Paul calls it alienation. James calls it an enemy of God. They're both talking about exactly the same thing. Am I going to be able to have fellowship with other members, the body of Christ, other believers in my church, if they're spiritually motivated and I'm not? 
Can't happen. Am I going to be able to agree with them when there are decisions that have to be made in the church? No. If my wife is moved by the Spirit and I am moved by the old man, the walking the way the Gentiles walk, motivated, as James says, for what I want and what I want to gain, are we going to have harmony together? Absolutely not. Could I suggest to you that every single divorce that ever took place in a Christian marriage was because of this problem? Every friendship that was ever destroyed among fellow believers is because of this very problem. Division creeps in, whether between two individuals, friends, or husband and wife, or whether an individual and their local church, or between two factions and two parties in the local church, and it's always because of the same problem. And the solution for it is the same. James says, lament and mourn and weep. Have you heard people, you know, there are evangelists and so-called prophets today who say, we're going to have a great revival. Great revival is coming to America. I'll tell you when you'll know that there is a revival. When our churches are on their knees weeping, we'll know we have a revival. We're not going to have it until then. Because we are proud of our carnality. We are proud of our alienation from God. We are proud of the fact that we have chosen our path and we are going to walk that path. And as the old song said, which is the stupidest song that was ever written, sung by Frank Sinatra, I did it my way. Yeah. Well, everybody in hell is going to be singing that song. I did it my way. I didn't do it God's way. Do you notice what he immediately follows this with? Here in verses 1 through 5, there were fights and wars, there was strife, contention, division, and then he shows us the seven steps of spiritual recovery in verses 7 through 10, and then he says, don't speak evil of one another, brethren. That's many times where it all starts. Don't speak evil of one another. If you speak evil of a brother... You're judging your brother. You're speaking evil of the law and judging the law. If you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, you're a judge. You have elevated yourself to a position that you cannot maintain. Who could possibly stand in the position of a judge of Scripture? No one could except one. What does he tell us? Verse 12, there is only one lawgiver who is able to save and destroy. Who are you to judge another? Could I just point this out to you and I'm going to end with it. In the notes you have on the book of James, James uses the word save five times. In none of those times is he talking about eternal salvation. Not a single one of them. Look at the passage right here. There is only one lawgiver who is able to save and destroy. Anytime you see the word save in Scripture, you should ask yourself, saved from what? Saved from what? Do you realize that you need salvation on a moment-by-moment, -moment, day day-by-day basis? What do we need to be delivered from? We need to be delivered from division and strife. 
We need to be delivered from walking as the Gentiles walk. Remember that the word save simply means to deliver from something. The context tells us what we need to be delivered from. We need to be delivered from making ourselves an enemy of God. We need to be delivered from alienating ourselves from the life of God. And the only one who can deliver us from all of these things is the same one who delivered us in the beginning at the cross. He delivered us from an eternity in the lake of fire. Christ keeps saving. We need to remember that. He saves us from ourselves. He saves us from the world. He saves us from the schemes of Satan. He saves us from pitfalls. He saves us from false motivation. <coughs> but only if we let him. He died for every member of the human race. Amen. He died to save sinners, Paul said, of whom I am chief. But in the end, who are the ones who are saved? Only those who receive it. Because, as I often say, God is a gentleman. He will not impose His grace on you. He offers it. He stands by, ready to give it. But He will never force you to receive that grace. <clears throat> I'm going to close with that. And we'll take our lunch break for however long we're going to take it. <clears throat> We've gone from Ephesians to the book of James. We're going to go from the book of James to Corinthians. From Corinthians to Romans will be done for the day. And you know what you're going to find in every single one of the passages? The same thing said over and over and over and over. Sometimes we don't get things unless it's emphasized and repeated. We're going to get it. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your grace. Bless your word to our understanding. Bless it to our conduct. Let it change the way we live. Let it change our character. Conform us to the image of your glorious Son and our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.